Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVille, and today we're going to be talking about the essence of life. This is the sound of water. It's the most important resource we have on Earth, and throughout history, humans have gravitated towards living near bodies of it. As of today, 90% of the human population lives within 10 kilometers, or around 6 miles, of a freshwater source. Our drive to seek water is innate, just like it is to seek food, but water is more valuable. Without water, we die within a few days but we can survive weeks and possibly even months without eating. Our economy would also shut down because we need to produce goods. We all know that life without water is impossible, but rarely do we think about the global water availability and distribution. Living in the States or any developed country, it's so easy to take water for granted. We turn on a faucet and clean water rushes out. We take long, luxurious showers, and we water our lawns until they're grassy and green. Oftentimes, we don't even know where this water's coming from or think about its purity. We just know it's there and ready to use. Having this unlimited access to water is a privilege. While most of the world's population does have access to clean water, many don't. About 2 billion people, actually. That's about one in four people. And while water in general is very abundant on Earth, covering around 70% of our planet, the fresh water we use to drink and produce food with is scarce. Only about 3% is fresh water. Most of it's locked up in glaciers, ice caps, or underground, making it difficult to access. Only about 1.2% of all fresh water is readily available on the surface. Out of all of this available fresh water, most of it goes into agriculture or other industrial usage. And the rest, about 8%, is used by consumers like me and you. Despite it being so essential to life, we often neglect to revere the true value of water, recognize the increasingly worrisome water scarcity issue, and honor the people who go to remarkable lengths just to get clean water. So today I want to explore each of these aspects so we can have a better understanding and relationship with the very thing that makes life possible. So let's dive in. Water is a human right, but it's also becoming more and more of a commodity to be sold. The population is only increasing meaning the demand for water will continue to skyrocket. According to the article Reassessing the Projections of the World Water Development Report, the global water demand has increased by 600% over the last 100 years. Every year, it's increasing by 1%. And by 2025, the water demand for agriculture will go up by 60%. By 2050, the water demand for all purposes will increase by 20 to 30% globally. Putting this type of pressure on an already limited water supply will cause a plethora of problems. 
Obviously, people's health will be directly affected, but the lesser thought of effects of this crisis are societal conflict and economic destruction. In a world where we don't have enough water, chaos will erupt. And in many places around the world, such as Yemen, conflict has already begun. So what's the problem? What is the water crisis and what does that mean for humanity? DW Planet A's documentary, How Far We Go to Solve the Water Crisis, states half of the global population experiences water scarcity during at least some parts of the year. Overconsumption, a heating planet, and bad water management are draining groundwater, lakes, and rivers worldwide. By the middle of the century, every second country will struggle with limited water access. While water is considered a renewable resource, humans and other factors affect its usability and accessibility. Water renews itself by completing a full cycle, meaning it evaporates off the Earth's surface, condenses in the atmosphere, and falls back down depositing into the ocean, porous rock, lakes, and rivers. But this cycle takes time, and increased human activity and climate change are depleting freshwater at such a high rate that it can't be replenished as quickly as it was used. This creates a degree of scarcity. According to the article, Why is Water Considered a Renewable Resource?, published by Green Tumble, the natural water cycle isn't at optimum efficiency because of heightened human consumption and pollution. Because of this, our water supply will continue to face increasing limitations, So, while water is renewable and bountiful in a natural broad sense, that doesn't mean that the 3% of all freshwater on Earth and that 1.2% of surface freshwater that we use to survive is inexhaustible. Overconsumption isn't the only cause of water scarcity. Increased temperatures from climate change are also affecting the supply. According to the United Nations article, Water at the Center of the Climate Crisis, Increased temperatures disrupt the entire water cycle, causing a variety of problems such as unpredictable rainfall, drought, and water pollution, as floods disturb sediments and chemicals. We'll also lose access to water stored in snow cover and glaciers. The Council of Foreign Relations also warns of the impact of climate change on water stress. Water stress is just a broader term for the problem of water scarcity, and refers to the inability to meet our demand for water. In the article, Water Stress, a Global Problem That's Getting Worse, the authors report renewable water resources drop 20% with every 1 degree Celsius increase in global average temperature. We're heading in that direction. I remember hearing on the news that this summer was the Earth's hottest year on record. And you know what? It's pretty noticeable. Even in water-abundant places like where I live in Louisiana, Louisiana is known for its wetlands and lush greenery, but right now we're faced with the possibility of a water shortage. Due to low rainfall and extreme heat, the Mississippi River's water levels have plummeted, making it less resistant to saltwater intrusion. The river is responsible for furnishing water to local communities, and the intrusion poses a very serious threat to many water treatment plants. Many plants' pipes can't tolerate saline water as it'll corrode them 
or have metal leak into the water. The New Orleans mayor has declared a state of emergency, and the U.S. Corps of Engineers are transporting an initial 15 million gallons of water to be mixed with the water at treatment facilities. All of these statistics that I've mentioned earlier can be somewhat dehumanizing, but it's important to remember that these numbers reflect humanity's well-being. Water scarcity may not affect me or you directly right now, depending on where you live, but it's particularly devastating to people living in poverty, and above all, women and children. So let's talk a little bit about the most affected regions and people when it comes to the water crisis. The most water-stressed regions in the world are the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia, according to the World Resources Institute in the article 25 countries housing one quarter of the population face extremely high water stress. That is the most stress-inducing title that I've ever read in my entire life. But extreme water stress in this context means that at least 80% of available water supply is being used. In the Middle East and North Africa, 83% of the population is subjected to this, and in South Asia, 74% is exposed. While industrial shutdown is a major risk to having an inefficient water supply, the most serious threats are related to health and society's most vulnerable people. Poverty and clean water access are undeniably connected. This is especially true for people living in developing countries, despite water scarcity issues, because of government negligence to provide strong water management and sanitation control. But this even holds true for developed countries such as the United States. According to the World Economic Forum's article, low-income communities lack access to clean water, Around 2.2 million people in the U.S. live without indoor plumbing and running water. One 2019 study found that people of color and low-income individuals were the most at risk for water insecurity. If water insecurity can be so prevalent in such a thriving economy such as the United States, I wonder about the lives of people around the world who live on less than $2.15 USD per day, which is the international poverty line. The World Bank reports that around 719 million people live in poverty across the world. That's 9.2% of the population. While water scarcity can be one barrier preventing people from accessing clean water, poverty, greed, and marginalization are other factors. A 2019 UNESCO report found that people living in poverty not only have more limited access to water than their wealthier counterparts, but they also pay more for poorer quality water. According to the Global Citizen article, Poorer People Pay More for Clean Water. For people living in sub-Saharan Africa, where about 60% of the urban population lives in slums, the article states people in poverty can pay around 10 to 20 times more for water than their wealthier neighbors. Water insecurity is also more prominent for marginalized groups. In India, especially in Bangalore and Delhi, the water mafia has a lot to do with the unequal distribution of water. 
The mafia has a hold on a private supply chain, often stolen, and then they send water tankers out into low-income communities every 10 to 15 days. The mafia is often backed by corrupt politicians and local water authorities. The mafia targets people in poverty, charging them absurd prices for something that should be free, and then they provide a product that is more likely than not polluted. This also starts local conflicts as people compete to get access to the tankers before others do. Water insecurity isn't only a problem of water scarcity. It's a problem of greed. People in poverty don't have a chance to thrive without sufficient access to water and proper sanitation. Without it, people won't be healthy enough to tend to themselves, their families, and the way in which they make a living. As of 2022, around 829,000 people die in low- and middle-income countries due to inadequate water, hygiene, and sanitation each year, according to the World Health Organization. The organization informs that 297,000 childhood deaths of kids under five could be prevented if there was better access to higher quality water, hygiene, and sanitation each year. I guarantee the majority of these victims were individuals of poverty. People with money will always have some access to water because they have the means to relocate or import water if necessary. People in poverty don't have this luxury, especially women and girls who often bear the greatest burden in the quest for water. Globally, women and girls tend to be primarily responsible for securing water. Women across the world spend around 200 million hours collectively obtaining it, whether that means traveling far distances or waiting in line to access it. According to the World Health Organization, girls are twice as likely to fetch water than boys. Not only does having to haul heavy containers of water take a tremendous toll on their bodies, but having the burden to fetch water takes away a variety of opportunities, such as education, work, personal development, and family responsibilities. There are many stories of women and girls from around the world struggling to safely and easily access water. But one situation centered in the ancient holy district of Nashik, India, caught my attention. Nashik is located in the western state of Maharashtra, near the city of Mumbai. Amid another severe water crisis in May 2023, women and girls from various villages traveled over a mile carrying plastic buckets or either multiple metal canisters on top of their heads, only to reach nearly bone-dry wells with often polluted water. Some wells were as deep as 70 feet, and the women were forced to scale down the walls using metal bars or the well's ridges for support. As they scaled down, they had no form of protection and relied on their own strength to avoid plummeting to the bottom. Many women made trips in the night to get water, making the endeavor even more life-threatening. This type of situation is not uncommon, and it reflects the often daily struggle many women and girls face in developing countries. No one should have to risk their life for water, and since women and girls bear the greatest burden in securing it, the water crisis 
really needs to be considered an issue of gender. Water scarcity and the search for water doesn't only threaten women and girls' lives directly, but it also affects them indirectly in the form of sexual assault. How is this so? Well, if women and girls don't have access to running water and toilets, they're often forced to seek a place to use the restroom in the middle of the night, making them more at risk to be raped and are killed. It also prevents girls from getting an education, because they often don't have a way to sanitize themselves at school during their periods. So who's to blame for all of this? Well, there isn't just one thing or one person, but I think a lot of the water crisis is due to greed and bad management, both on the side of the government and private corporations. People have this tendency to accumulate stuff and the result is overconsumption. Water is necessary to make products themselves and power the plants that the products are made in. So personally, I think we could save a lot of water by reducing our consumer demand for frivolous things like bottles of Coke. But that's an idealistic solution because no one's going to do that. Why? Because we're greedy. Water is also cheap to use, so it encourages people and companies to keep using it. Why shouldn't they? The virtually free cost of water is signaling both to the public and private sector that we have enough of it. But that's not true. Our aquifers are steadily decreasing from intense usage, and surface water is being used up, becoming polluted, and are evaporating due to increased temperatures. Maybe if the price of water was increased, companies and people would conserve more. Besides that, a lot of water is wasted from bad infrastructure. As I was writing this episode outside a local cafe, I saw a tiny little bird bathing under one of the city's leaky pipes. That reminded me of the leaky faucet I had in my kitchen, and then I thought about all the leaky pipes around the world simultaneously leaking at once. According to the article How Much Water is Wasted Due to Bad Plumbing, written by Jeff Pallady, NPR reported that the United States loses around... Take a guess here. It's wild. Two trillion gallons of clean water each year due to leaking faucets and pipes. That's around one-sixth of our water supply. Think about all of the other countries around the world who even have worse infrastructure than the United States. The amount of water that we're losing globally from water management is not only nearly incomprehensible, I'm sure there's a number on it, but it's also devastating because better management could be saving people's lives. And the fact that we're just so careless with our most valuable resource is infuriating and unethical. When we think about the water crisis, we often don't think about war. But water and peace are directly related, and many conflicts have been started over water's availability and distribution. Let's take Yemen for example. Yemen is in the middle of an eight-year-old civil war and is at the heart of the water crisis. The United Nations reports that around 70 to 80% of conflicts in Yemen are over water, according to a study conducted by Sana University. This is due to Yemen not only being one of the most water-scarce countries in the world, but it's also due to an increasing population and a corrupt, weak government who can't distribute water fairly. 
The increased population is one cause of the country's depleting groundwater, which might completely dry up in the next two decades, according to the news channel France 24. Water scarcity has caused some entire villages to migrate to cities, which also have strained water resources. This causes tension to arise as established host communities and internally displaced persons compete for limited drinking water. The government has failed to distribute available water fairly as people of power and wealth are favored above small farmers, women and children, and poorer communities. On top of this, water is used as a weapon of war. According to the article, Yemen's Water Crisis, A New Urgency to an Old Problem, published in 2021, the author explains that both the two conflicting parties of the civil war have blocked water deliveries to civilians as militaristic ploys. Dams, reservoirs, water infrastructure, and fresh water pipes have also been destroyed during the conflict, leaving millions of people without access to clean water and causing diseases such as cholera. Food insecurity is also extremely high in Yemen, and water scarcity doesn't help this as about 90% of Yemen's water is used for agriculture. Currently, around 17 million Yemenis are food insecure, meaning they don't know when they'll have another meal. Conflict over water isn't uncommon, and it's already been well documented in other countries such as India and Mexico. As the water scarcity problem worsens, tensions are going to increase. Going forward, we really need to be careful that water doesn't become any more weaponized than it already is. Water doesn't only directly affect people's health and social peace, but it also affects the well-being of the global economy, especially of small businesses and farms. There's going to be an increasing disparity between people in companies of power and those of lesser means. Money, power, and land possession will be the main factors which determine who gets the most water. For example, we can already see this in Mexico with Coca-Cola and the Imperial Irrigation District in the desert of Southern California. The DW documentary Who Owns Water, which I highly recommend watching on YouTube, explains that beverage companies like Coca-Cola are highly responsible for water overconsumption. In San Cristobal, Mexico, a water-stressed city, Coca-Cola is hogging all the water to produce Coke products, forcing locals to buy expensive bottles of water, often owned by Coca-Cola. It's really messed up. In the documentary, they interview Margarita Pell, a city local, and they show her turning on a faucet outside a shop. Nothing comes out. It's bone dry. She explains that this is a citywide problem that every neighborhood faces— According to another interview, this problem comes and goes with the tap periodically coming on and off, depending on the available water supply. But here's the sinister part. Due to exclusive water licenses, the city always makes sure that the Coca-Cola plant always has sufficient water to keep operating. I'm not sure if this is still the case since the documentary was released a year ago, but This reflects a very scary reality of the government favoring major corporations over people. In the United States, we have a similar situation going on with the Imperial Irrigation District in Southern California and water access given to large-scale farms that use the water to grow crops that will eventually be exported abroad to countries like China. The Imperial Irrigation District, also known as the IID, is one of the largest agricultural areas in North America, 
supplying around 500,000 acres of farmland with Colorado River water. About three-fourths of California's allocation of Colorado's river water goes to the EID, according to the documentary, and the site of the district is really striking. In the middle of extremely dusty desert, miles and miles of lush vegetation thrives due to artificial irrigation. And uh, guess who set up camp there, too? Coca-Cola, obviously. But anyway, formed in 1911, the IID holds the oldest and largest water rights on the West Coast, and many of their rights are held by the IID Agricultural Association. Obviously, agriculture is necessary, but is it really necessary to be growing crops in the middle of the desert? I mean, isn't there a better place to do that? Especially if some of these fields aren't specifically growing food for the United States? Alfalfa, he used to feed cattle, is one staple crop of the region, and most of it, 75% actually, is being exported to China. International trade is good, but I'm not sure if it is in this case. In the video, they liken the situation to bottling up precious Colorado River water and shipping it abroad. Surrounding water-stressed areas with booming populations such as San Diego and Coachella Valley are getting super screwed over because most of the water is being used up in the district— the fields of the AID use up about 3.7 trillion gallons of water, and I wonder if it's being fairly distributed and efficiently used. The water crisis is so complex, but it's so important to think about, even if it's for the sake of gratitude. I'm so lucky to have clean water right now, and it's something I'm definitely going to put on my gratitude list. We take it for granted, but water is the most valuable and vulnerable resource we have. Before summing up this episode, I really wanted to introduce two innovations that aim to increase the water supply. I'm not saying they're solutions to the crisis, but they're super interesting. With all the amount of water that's in the ocean, one solution that's kind of obvious would be to try and convert it to drinking water by removing the salt. This is called desalination, and the concept's been around for thousands of years. Currently, there are about 20,000 desalination plants across the world today. These plants are capable of producing a staggering amount of drinking water. For example, one desalination plant located in San Diego, California, can produce as much as 60 million gallons of desalted water each day. As of 2018, around 300 million people were getting their water from desalination plants. Off the bat, Desalination plants seem to be the fix to the water crisis because, I mean, gosh, we just have so much water in the sea. But the bad thing is, is that these plants are extremely expensive, energy intensive, and generally bad for the environment. If it's expensive to make, that most likely means that it's going to be expensive to access. This isn't going to be helpful for the people that need water the most because those people are generally low income. Secondly, these plants take a lot of fossil fuels to run and generate a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, which increase global warming. As a result of production, they also dump wastewater with high concentrations of salt back in the ocean. This can cause oxygen levels to decrease, and this can severely and negatively affect marine life. Desalination isn't the perfect fix to the problem, but maybe as technology improves, it'll become a more sustainable tool in the crisis. 
Another solution some people are turning to is called fog harvesting. It's a really nifty concept, and I kind of want to make a fog harvester at home just to experiment, but basically, they're giant mesh nets that capture vapor near the ground as wind blows through them. They then channel water droplets into pipes, which exit into containers underneath. Depending on the quality and scale of the nets, they can harvest thousands of liters of water per day. In Morocco, a very arid place, they have the largest harvesting system in the world, and it collects around 35,000 liters of water per day. They've been able to distribute the water to people's homes by way of pipes. Fog harvesting is catching on in popularity, and even though it's not a new concept, it's popping up more and more around the world. With the right amount of financial aid, remote and low-income communities could have better access to clean drinking water through the use of fog harvesters. I'm going to be honest with you, this was kind of a depressing episode. But the water crisis is a problem that humanity is just going to have to figure out. Or we won't. It's really a 50-50 toss-up at this point. If worse comes to worse, we'll just have to start hauling in whole icebergs from the poles. But hurry, they're melting. That's actually a real thing, by the way. Leaders have thought about doing this, and who knows, maybe it would help. But they do need to hurry because those icebergs are melting away. But anyway, I truly hope you learned something from this episode. I know I learned a lot by researching, and it's definitely changed how I see water. It just makes me think how vulnerable we all are, and how we should, at bare minimum, be conscientious about our water intake. Many people are saying water is the new gold, so let's try hanging on tight to it. With that being said, that concludes our eighth episode. If you'd like to read up on anything I've talked about, I'll leave my sources in the show notes. Also, please don't hesitate to send me messages via nomadicate.com or nomadicate underscore podcast on Instagram to shout out future episode suggestions. And above all, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share and leave a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate, and I'm your host, Katie DeVille. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for being a global citizen. Remember to stay curious. Curious.